Attack of the Final Girls is a podcast about the horror genre, so listener discretion is advised. Please check the show notes for specific content warnings for this episode. And of course, beware of spoilers. Welcome to Attack of the Final Girls. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. And this is episode 26. And we are uh, fresh off a rewatch of a film we had opinions about before. And I think we have even more opinions about now. 2018's Mandy. 60% more opinions free. (laughs) (laughs) So I heard about this movie, obviously, when it came out in 2018. It wasn't really on my radar. I think this was like right at the whole Nick Cage resurgence thing. Yeah, definitely. And I was still enjoying like my face off. Yeah. Because I really love face Classic off. Classic Cage. <laughs> but you know what? I also love like Raising Arizona. I think Raising Arizona oh, yeah. is fantastic. Valley Girl, mm-hmm. um, Wild at Heart. Love early Nick Cage. So it was like, uh, I knew that it was happening, but I it wasn't really like on my radar of something I had to watch right then. And then, of course, we got reintroduced because Joe Bob, during the last drive-in, featured this movie on his show. And honestly, like, the Joe Bob show, the last drive-in was sort of Juliet and I's lifeline during pandemic times. Absolutely, yeah. I was telling somebody else this earlier this week that it was kind of a miracle that they had the spring 2020 season done in time that it launched like the second week of full lockdown yeah and that was one of the like only regular predictable things in anybody's life at that point to be able to just know like okay well i guess i can depend on you know like are we working are we not working are we working from home at least fridays at nine o'clock i can order a pizza and watch joe bob yeah And Juliet and I would, like, link up and message one another and, like, laugh about what movies, you know. So it was a healing thing. It was. It was, one, yeah, like she said, it was one of the only, like, very um, reliable things that was happening because it was the resurgence of Joe Bob. It was the resurgence of The Last Drive-In. He had done some specials, but I think that was his first, like, full season back on Shudder. I think so, yeah. They did the marathons, yeah. and then they had done, like, a Halloween special, and I think a prior Valentine's special, maybe? Or, like, Christmas. Something. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it was Christmas. And then it was, like, first full season. And honestly, it was sort of a trauma bonding thing. Yeah. There totally. were tons of people that both trauma bonded over this and also, like, it was partly that and partly um, the nostalgia of seeing Monster Vision or, you yep. know, anything that Joe Bob had done before. So, of course, when Joe Bob was like, all right, we're going to watch 2018's Mandy, we were like, okay, guess we're, the, we're doing That's this. That's what we're watching. <laughs> um, and we had some opinions about it. And so we wanted to give it another shot um, watching it and paying close attention this time. Because it is a movie that is really polarizing. Yeah. People have lots of opinions. Um, It's a great looking film. It's beautiful. Yeah. Visually and sonically. Yes. Oh, my gosh. The music is just killer. Yeah. And this was Johan Johansson, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, In the movie is actually dedicated in his memory. Yeah. He died in February of 2018. So he had already scored the film 
but by the time it was released, uh, he was already deceased. So it was a posthumous release for him. It was, I think, one of the last two films that he scored. Wow. The music is truly, like, if I were to say purchase a soundtrack from a movie, this would definitely be one of the ones that's, like, higher up. Absolutely. Um, It sounds fantastic. Um, But when we first watched it, having it in that sort of format where you're um, the last drive-in, you have your introduction from Mm -hmm. Joe Bob, and then you start watching the film, and then there's cut-ins, of course. So it sort of takes you out of this movie. You really need to be submerged in the film. Yeah. We kind of talked about that then. Like, do you feel like it takes you out of it a little bit to be, to have those cut-ins? It can. I think the horror hosting format works better for certain movies than others. You know, there are a lot of movies and having actually just come off editing a horror host show for Halloween, there are movies that are easier to cut into than others. Like there are a lot of movies where there are natural breaks in the scene where it feels like really appropriate to fade to black or crossfade into a host segment. And then you come back and you're in a new scene and it's fine and it feels really natural. I think it doesn't work as well with certain movies. It's kind of the reason why, even though, yes, there are public domain necessities, certain films have become horror host classics, you know? Mm -hmm. They're films that hosts do a lot, partially because they're available, but also partially because they're really easy to come into and out of. This is not that film. I mean, quite frankly, it would be the same thing, like, I think, trying to go in and out of Midsummer, mm-hmm. Like, it wouldn't work, or Hereditary, or something right. like that. Like, cutting into an Ari Aster film would be much harder than cutting into something like, even like our last movie, Night of the Demons. Mm-hmm. It's much easier to cut in and out of that. There are enough breaks in the action, or shifts into a different part of the house, or, mm-hmm. you know, oh, what's the person outside doing, where it feels like a natural cut. This movie, not so much because the whole thing is just a giant fever LSD dream (laughs) kind of a situation. I will say that like just in the first act of the movie, the way that I was feeling when we were watching it is more like this movie should be an IMAX experience. Yeah. And I'm saying that legitimately, like I really feel like this movie should have had an IMAX release because you're not really watching a film. A film is kind of happening to you. Yeah. The stage is set. The music is happening. You're immersed in this uh, trippy Technicolor dream world. Bad acid trip world, I guess you could say. And that really lends itself well to an IMAX because the music is overtaking, you know, there's not a lot of dialogue during those early parts of the film. It's mostly just music mm-hmm. and sound and color. So having that as an IMAX release would have been pretty amazing. As far as I know, I don't think there was an IMAX release, but yeah. No. But yeah, it's almost like an experience. I likened it to watching like Tommy or Pink Floyd's The Wall, where there's not a whole lot happening in terms of dialogue, but there's a lot happening in terms of like music and light and sound and and color, which is cool. There's a place for that. Definitely. Yeah. And I mean, there are films being made like this now, but that is definitely like a late 80s, early 90s thing. Like there was just a, this is going to go off on a music nerd tangent for a minute. (laughs) There was just a re-release of an album 
called Kronos by this composer named Michael Stearns. They just did a remaster of it. I literally just got it. He's kind of, you know, one of those pioneers of ambient electronic music. And he did a score for this film Kronos, which was an IMAX film. And it's very much like what you're describing, where it was designed to be a fully immersive, like sonic and visual experience, not necessarily a linear story. Right. You know? and, and I feel like this movie definitely nods to that, both intentionally and perhaps unintentionally in some ways. Like, I think it's like simultaneously a good and a bad thing that this movie kind of has that vibe of those old, like, immersive IMAX movies. Right. If you can pay attention and if you don't, you know, have to have it chopped up, yeah. it does a great job of transporting you to something different. I would definitely recommend if you're going to watch this movie, turn up the sound, turn down mm-hmm. the lights. I agree. And experience it in that way. Try not to have, you know, 30 other things happening at the same time. And it's not because you have to pay attention. It's not a movie where you're going to miss out on a lot if you skip a couple right. minutes. But it is a movie that I think, at least in terms of visually and like what you were saying sonically, it deserves to have your attention Mm -hmm. because it'll pull you down to that level, I think. But I really do love the soundtrack. For as many criticisms as I have of the story and how I feel at the end of the movie, I would say that those things are like the highlights for me of the movie. So just to quickly summarize, the movie is about Nick Cage plays uh, Red Miller who is in a relationship with Mandy, Mandy Bloom, played by Andrea Riseborough, and Jeremiah Sand, played by Linus Roach, sees Mandy and decides that he must have her, and chaos ensues. <laughs> yes, chaos most definitely ensues. It was written and directed by Panos Cosmatos, and I have not seen his first movie, which was called Beyond the Black Rainbow. Although he did work as a crew member on Tombstone, 1993's Tombstone, which his dad, George P. Cosmatos, did. But he did do a short for Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities most Mm -hmm. recently. The short film or episode, I guess you could say, of the show is called The Viewing and stars Peter Weller and Eric Andre. And it feels very stylistically the same. So I think when we see more of his work in the future, it's going to be pretty similar. You're going to have very high saturation color, reds, purples, oranges. It's Mm going to look like a disco video, lots of lens flare. But that's a good thing. I think that that just kind of lends to his his style. And he did just announce that he is going to be releasing a new feature soon. Ooh. I believe it's going to be called Necrocosmos. And Ooh. I don't think there's a date yet. I, as I was doing a little research for today, that popped up. Okay. Across my internet browsing. <laughs> it sounds like it's going to be in space, which I think his aesthetic Necrocosm. will totally lend to a space and they're calling that one a sci-fi film, sci-fi okay. fantasy. So, all right, we shall see. Well, that sounds pretty interesting. Oh, and A24 is releasing it. Okay. All right. All right. I'm in. Speaking of planets and space, one of the early conversations that we see Red and Mandy have, they're laying together under the stars. Mm-hmm. And they live out in the middle of nowhere. No idea where. It's Pacific Northwest. Forests. Living the dream. <laughs> On the middle of nowhere, Red's a logger, it seems like. Mandy is an artist, and she also sort of works at a a convenience store slash general store. Okay, she reads at the store, 
and occasionally takes money for yes. goods. <laughs> Um, let's clarify that. Yeah, yeah. But one of their first conversations that we see is their discussion of their favorite planets. Mandy says that her favorite planet is Jupiter. And Nick Cage says that his favorite planet is Saturn. But that then later he amends it to Galactus. And Mandy's like, Galactus isn't a planet. And he's like, yeah, but he eats planets, right? <laughs> Which I thought was funny because Nick Cage has been involved in a lot of Marvel stuff. He's a giant comic book nerd. Too. Yeah. So I wonder if that was an improv line or something that he asked to be put in. Because he is, in addition to having been in comic book movies, like the reason he got the Ghostwriter role is because he is a giant, massive Ghostwriter fan. That's and why a his massive la- Marvel Comics fan. That's why his last name is Cage. Right. From Luke Cage. Right. Yeah. Because his last name is actually Coppola. Coppola. Yeah. <laughs> He's part of the Coppola family. Yes. But he was like, no, I need to be separate from yes. them. So I will make my last name Cage like Luke Cage. Mm-hmm. Which is awesome. Yeah. It's respectable to want to separate yourself from a, a family that is as well known as the Coppola's, even Definitely. though it's he's like tangentially, I think he's a cousin or something. Yeah, I think he's Sophia Coppola's cousin. Because he, I don't think he grew up like with the Coppola wealth. Right. I don't think so. That's the impression that I got. But he also was like, I don't want to go into a casting director and then give them my, you know, my headshot with Coppola written on the bottom of it. Right. And then get profiled. Right. So um, he changed his name, which is cool. And and he probably would not have been in the movies that he was in starting out, like Valley Girl or Raising Arizona. You know, Coen Brothers didn't start getting gigantic, like right. big name yeah. actors. You know, they created a lot of big name actors. Definitely. Yeah. The Saturn and Jupiter thing, though, do you think that their favorite planets have any significance to their character arc oh you're asking the astrology nerd yeah yeah i think so okay yeah because saturn is a planet that is often associated with grief and things that you're carrying and you know sort of heaviness Mm -hmm. um, which makes perfect sense for him for his character journey whereas jupiter is a planet that is associated with home mm-hmm. and homemaking. It's also the largest planet and sometimes viewed as almost larger than life in certain regards. So, yeah, I think there's something there for sure. I also have to wonder if there are some like Roman mythology tie-ins. Mm-hmm. Um, Saturn being the god of like time. Yeah. And actually Saturn equals Kronos and then Jupiter is Zeus. Right. So Mandy's favorite being Zeus, the god of thunder, but also like a vengeful, jealous god as well. And then Saturn, the equivalent being Kronos and time. Knowing that he's a big space nerd, I have to wonder if Cosmatos didn't like bake in some astrology slash mythology slash... You know, it could be as banal as just those are their favorites because Saturn has rings and Jupiter's really big. Yeah. (laughs) It totally could be. But I was like, hmm, planets, I wonder. Yeah. I had to wonder that. Speaking of symbology, what did you think about the dream that Mandy had of finding the dead fawn in the forest? I think it 
ties into the story she tells about the starlings as Mm -hmm. a child. You know, there's definitely some trauma associated with her father and some cruelty of also watching something innocent be dead or dying. That then, you know, both the starlings and the fawn, I think, are meant to foreshadow her, you Mm -hmm. know, her experience that she is in all of this and innocent, you know, mm-hmm. through and through, because she neither does anything to provoke her murder, nor does she do anything in retaliation, obviously, because she's dead. But you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. She does. She neither provokes nor retaliates against the violence that is put upon her. Yeah. So I think it's some foreshadowing. I think it's also looking backward to her childhood. We're meant to see her, which quite frankly, gets into some of the problematic stuff about her character. You know, we are meant to see her as being an entirely innocent character to whom violence is done. Mm -hmm. The problem is that is like kind of her whole thing. Yeah. The Starling story and the violence that happens senselessly on the part of her father, who is the one who kills these Starlings, really struck me this time. I think the first time I either missed this part or I was not paying close attention. Mm-hmm. But this kind of like rolls into the idea of like, what is this movie even about? <laughs> um, yeah. Because I read a couple of pieces of trivia that this movie is about the death of parents. I read that this movie is about age and youth. I read that this movie is about a love story and lost love. And then, Juliet, you read something totally else. Yeah, and then I read something that it's about toxic masculinity. It's got aspects of all of those things. It certainly does. Yes, it certainly touches on all of those things. But we should note that all of these are coming from the director. Yeah. Talking about not just like, oh, it's a movie about this and this and this. In different interviews, he's kind of said, oh, this movie is emphatically about this oh, this movie is emphatically about that, which like a movie can be about a lot of things. But to me, it kind of comes off like knowing that and then watching the film, I'm like, do you know what your movie is about? Or like, or did you know when you were making it, did you make a decision? Yeah. And that's like one of those things like when I'm like mentoring people or teaching people, like whether it's in writing or podcasting or whatever, I'm like, you have to decide what the thing is about. It can't be a situation where it's about one thing one day and then it's about another thing another day because your audience, your audience is not in your head. You can't, you know, give them new context with every new shoot. And to me, that's where this movie really falls flat is I feel like I can see what he's going for in any given moment, but it's not coherent or cohesive rather. Right. Like the movie changes path or changes direction in the middle or like in certain scenes Mm -hmm. where you'll see one scene and you'll think, okay, I can understand how this is about youth and age. And then that doesn't really go anywhere. Right. And then, uh, because ultimately, I feel like this movie is a revenge flick, but he didn't say that. Right. That was not one of the four items that he (laughs) listed off as the movie being about. And maybe that's me being reductive, but I really think that the movie is Mandy gets kidnapped, Mandy gets murdered, Red goes on revenge spree. Mm -hmm. 
drug-fueled revenge spree. Yeah. I mean, and that's, that is reducing it down because there are a lot of other concepts that are introduced. And, you know, we've got this strange uber-religious cult. We have a whole storyline about drugs that goes all the way through. We have this weird, like, second life that Red has mm-hmm. where he's hidden this crossbow with his friend who makes him these custom crossbow bolts and then he also knows how to smelt this whole axe thing and but all of those things i just mentioned do not indicate to me the death of my parents this is me working through the death of my parents this is me exploring age and aging Mm -hmm. this is me exploring you know i don't get that from those those things and a movie can simultaneously have several themes like i think about x you Mm -hmm. know x is a movie about aging and aging bodies and sexuality x is a movie about pornography in society you know um x is a movie about sex versus love and all of those things exist simultaneously and can exist simultaneously within the plot and the plot supports all of those things you know in any given moment, one is more prominent than the other two themes, but you're getting all three kind of working together throughout. And the narrative is always sort of supporting those ideas. And I just didn't feel that here. Mm-hmm. It was just kind of like in any given moment, it's like, okay, what are we doing? What am I looking for symbolically? I couldn't lock in with it in the same way as I can with other films. Yeah, definitely. And part of this, and this is something that we talked about the entire time we were watching the movie, is drugs. Yeah. And I only pulled one other person who I could get a hold of while we were watching this movie. (laughs) But I've never dropped acid before. Yeah, me neither. So we're coming from a place where this movie looks like what we think an acid trip would be. And so I hit up a friend of mine and I was like, hey, I know you've seen this movie. Do you feel like the way that you receive this movie was changed because you've taken acid before. And he told me, yes, I mm-hmm. like, I do think that it affected the way I received the movie. And so I wonder if that is like the last barrier that's preventing us from like really locking in with it. Although I don't know that that would improve the scatteredness of a movie, like the scattered storyline. I don't think that taking a mind altering drug would help me better understand that but it might make me forget yeah so my assumption is there and like no judgment you know you do you um i am not a person that partakes of substances beyond alcohol and caffeine um i know my vices (laughs) but i wonder if that is where if you either are having that experience or have had that experience the scatteredness doesn't matter and contributes more to that immersive IMAX equality that we're talking about that I can appreciate and was very beautiful, but I also didn't find myself so engrossed and locked into it in the way that I do with other films where for whatever reason, whether it's story, whether it's atmosphere, like, you know that feeling when you're watching a movie and you're just like, you're almost like physically pulled toward the screen like you are leaning in you are in it you're you feel like surrounded by the film Mm -hmm. i could never get there with this film but i could see how if you have experience with psychedelics you probably could yeah because of the way it's made because of the visuals because of the theming and yeah the plot is still going to be scattered but i think that pull would do a lot to improve the experience 
Yeah. And we just don't have that. <laughs> yeah. And drug use is a big theme in a lot of Cosmatos' work. So this movie, there's definitely LSD. Mm-hmm. There's maybe DMT usage in this. There's a gigantic wasp sting uh, <laughs> that Mandy gets that makes her go trippy. There's like this strange goop that Nick Cage puts on his tongue and he has like immediate visions He also does big rails of cocaine in this movie. So there's like heavy drug use. And that um, short film that he did for Netflix, there is a scene in the viewing at the very beginning where there is a curated heroin experience that Mm -hmm. Peter Weller does, which Juliet mentioned when I had told her about this because she hasn't seen that. It's different when you're a Midwestern person, like lower middle class, who at one time lived in the opioid overdose capital of the United States, like, it's tough to see a movie where drug use plays such a big role. Yeah, and it's drug use plays such a big role. And it's such a role of privilege, and more so the um, the short film that you're talking about. But even in this, like, to have a film where drugs are not there, there's no consequence, you mm-hmm. know, and drugs are freely available and they're portrayed as weird and wild and trippy but there's never the other side of it it's just hard being from this area and seeing that you know having known many people who have been affected by the opioid epidemic people who have lost their lives people who are actively in recovery or people who experienced incarceration because of simple things like I hurt my back working my factory job or my construction job and I got addicted to pills and I was poor and that led me down a path to incarceration. Like, it's just, I don't know. It's hard for me anymore to look at these sort of like glamorized, stylized portrayals of drug use, especially heroin, and not just feel the weight of the privilege there. And I get it. Movies are movies. But when you come from here, that's it's harder, I yeah. think. And also to see it done, like, some of the drug use is recreational. Yeah. But it's hard to watch a woman get forced to be drugged. Yes. Totally different vibe yes, there. Absolutely. And the movie feels like an acid trip anyways. And I'm speaking from somebody who has never had an acid trip. <laughs> so, you know. Take that with a grain of salt, but also to see somebody forced to do it, to see somebody doing it in this sort of like icky feeling scene where it's like one of the demon bikers is has just a face full of cocaine and he's watching an old Ron Jeremy film like porn on the television and you just have to sit there and watch it and it feels gross. And then in the course of his murderous rampage, Nick Cage both does the weird DMT jelly stuff and he also does this huge, huge rail of coke and that like fuels the rest of this journey for him, which Mm -hmm. is like totally blood soaked. So it doesn't even feel like a good relationship with drugs inside the movie. Right. It's not like, oh, we're doing drugs recreationally. I'm doing this hit of cocaine so that I'm going to talk to you, you know, a million miles a minute. No, it's like, these harmful things are happening and drugs also exist at the same time. Mm -hmm. And it makes me feel even worse. Yeah. And some of that too, I think probably for both of us, our perception is colored by 
the mass reception of this film, which is, and we talked about this a little bit with Idle Hands, but in general, like, I have a hard time, like, I don't love movies where drugs, like, capital D drugs is a character mm-hmm. in the movie. Yeah. And I also just, I grow really tired of movies where kind of nonsensically we're just cheering for characters. Like, you have a really icky scene like that, and it feels really icky and uncomfortable, but what we're hearing from other people watching this movie is, wow, that was so badass, and it was so trippy and weird, and I'm like, what are you seeing that I'm not seeing? Because I just felt really gross and uncomfortable. Yeah. I don't know. And and more often than not, like, that's my response to the scenes is I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I find it hard to square sometimes when I hear people that are just like, especially about this movie, they're like, oh, man, like, Nick Cage, blood-soaked, drug, cocaine. And I'm just like, okay. Yeah. Okay. Like, if you watch the last act of this film, which is just called Mandy, Mm -hmm. if you watch the last act of this film without the rest of the movie, the other two acts, you might not feel that way. You might not have felt that because there are icky scenes. But if you didn't have the context of the first two, the third act might actually be cooler to watch because if all you knew was that somebody's going on a rampage. Yeah. Okay, cool. And during the course of that rampage, you might have to chug, you know, a handle of vodka. You might have to do some cocaine. Okay, cool. We're doing that. But with the additional context of those first two acts, it makes the third act feel worse. Yeah, it really does. That's something I want to talk about, but I feel like I'm going to go on a rampage myself with that. So before we talk about that, Mm -hmm. I want to talk about... What you mentioned last time about how you feel like this movie might have been partially inspired or at least is parallel to a local filmmaker. Yes. So one of the things that really stuck out to me when we did watch this on the last drive and the first time we watched it. And part of this is that I had just rewatched this film also on the last drive in is the similarities between the third act of Mandy and the film Deadbeat at Dawn, which was directed by Jim Van Bepper and filmed here in Dayton, Ohio. The premise is very similar, you know, in Deadbeat at Dawn, it is a gang member who's trying to retire and kind of just quietly live his life with his girlfriend. And then she is murdered by a rival gang and he goes on a rampage to get his revenge. And so I was like, wow, this has a parallel to Deadbeat at Dawn. And then the second act has a parallel to Jim Van Bepper's Manson Family film, which is a very, you know, there have been many movies that cover the Manson family. This one is very, very trippy and very weird. Um, You kind of, same thing, have to be in like the right headspace to watch it. But I really wonder if the director of Mandy watched some of those early Van Beber films and found, you know, either conscious or unconscious inspiration in them because there are some distinct parallels. And granted, these are not earth-shattering new tropes. These are, you know, very common story elements. But the direct parallel between those films, it feels like there's something there to me, at least. Yeah, and, you know, visually, very, very different. Jim Van Beber has a tendency to be very gritty, Mm -hmm. both by way of time, you know, making movies in the late 70s and early 80s on a shoestring budget. You're going to have some gritty-looking film. He was so young when he made Deadbeat at Dawn. Right. He might have still been a film student at that point, or he was fresh out of film school. Like, you look at the credits of that film, and it was 
all of his film school companions right. that were involved in it. And that's how you get free labor. Yep. <laughs> Is the film school. <laughs> yeah. So stylistically very different, but like the main storyline of the film like runs so closely parallel. Yeah. And of course, revenge films, this happen a lot. A revenge film, like somebody breaking out of a a gross situation and, you know. I mean, look at the popularity of John Wick. Right. Exactly. John Wick, very also very similar. Yeah. I mean, John Wick is like the fancy action version of Deadbeat at Dawn. It is cool to see potential inspiration mm-hmm. from one to another, especially for something that's kind of local to us. Okay, I'm going to pivot. Yeah. Because I want to talk about just a couple other things before we hit the main vein, I think, yes. of what this episode is going to yes. be about. The Demon Biker Gang. Yeah. Let's pivot to them for a second. Do you think that the Demon Biker Gang was actually demons? So that's a really good question. And that is a question I asked myself the first time I watched this movie. And I ask myself now is, is there actually a supernatural aspect to this film? Or is anything that we think is supernatural both and or either or a product of drugs and or the sort of fantasy world that Mandy has, I don't want to say created for herself because she's a very, from what we can tell, we'll get to that in a minute. She is a a fairly grounded character who uses fantasy in a normal, healthy way. She is an artist. She likes to read fantasy novels. I don't know because even watching it this time, I was like, kind of looking for that, I was like, is there actually something supernatural at all here? Or is it all grounded in a very effed up reality where the fantasy elements are only coming from the characters' heads aided by substance or grief or both? Right. So this movie is interesting in that it's told from sort of a third-person omniscient point of view. Mm -hmm. But we almost have to question as to whether or not a third-person omniscient is an unreliable storyteller. Yeah. Which is confusing and also challenging. And yeah. it's cool. I like, you know, I, I do love a challenging film. I really do. But in this particular instance, there are these, the demon bikers, which honestly, in terms of plot, like, you don't even really need them. Right. But the only times that we see the demon bikers are the cult gang. They see them as they kind of enter their area or wherever they are. And then we see them again when Red starts to go on his blood-soaked rampage. But both of those times, we're with unreliable viewers. Mm -hmm. Because the cult is like pretty much all the time on drugs. I want to say, just based off of the way that they act. And then we know that Nick Cage is both struggling with an intense amount of grief... We're not sure whether or not he was drugged by the cult. Right. Because Mandy definitely was. He could have been. They tied him up and basically left him for dead. He could have been drugged, but we definitely know that he drinks a lot of vodka. Mm -hmm. And then he also takes drugs. So it could be that these bikers are simply bikers who are wearing scary masks, or it could be that they're actually demons. And we never, we can never know one way or the other. The other thing that makes me think that potentially there's some supernatural stuff is that that wasp that the mother character had, definitely not real life. Mm -hmm. It's like huge. It's like six inch wasp that stings Mandy. And then that's like another additional uh, psychedelic drug or not psychedelic, but like mind altering drug 
that they administer to Mandy. She definitely gets the LSD to the eye, and then she gets uh, stung by a wasp. I have no idea. I can't decide. I feel like nothing that the omniscient, you know, third person omniscient tells you is real. So I'm just like, well, I guess or whatever. You know what would have been really fun? And this is so twisted. What would be really fun? I think it would have been fun rather than the ending that we got, the car ending. Mm -hmm. It would have been really great if the ending, it's finally revealed that he killed her and it was all drug mania. That none none of that actually happened and that he either intentionally or accidentally killed her. And that was all his psychology and his trauma creating this scenario. I would have loved this movie so much more if that were the case. That's super twisted, I realize. And it would have taken twisted endings. It would have taken very little to like do that. Yeah. Because you could have had that entire movie and then you have the ending of the two of them like in the car and then just a little bit of extra. Yeah. You could have had that. It needed like a scene and that was it. A tiny scene. Yeah. I feel like that probably would have been really satisfying. Mm Mm-hmm. Because as it stands, the movie is just basically, like, senseless violence. And, like, not to say that there's not a place for revenge, because there is a place for a revenge film. And we're definitely going to talk about some other revenge films that were not as well-received. But I don't know that revenge for revenge's sake is what we need to see in a film. Basically, I'll just put it out there. By the end of this film... What character growth do we see in Red? Exactly. What was the revenge for? Mm-hmm. Is he going to build a better life? Is right. he going to, you know, try and start over? Does he have to? No. But what you like to see in a yeah. revenge film is growth, a difference in the character towards the end. By the end of this movie, he's just covered in blood and, like, coked out of his mind. Yeah. Is that a satisfying ending? Yeah. I was not satisfied with the ending. Yeah. And I think that's why I leaned toward like, oh, it was all in his head because then I could justify the violence of it as him trying to work it out in his head, you know, him trying to grapple with his own trauma, him trying to almost have psychological revenge on himself as opposed to, you know, we just kind of leave him utterly broken and i get it if we're if we are taking this as this is a movie about grief which it tries to be i guess that's very real Mm -hmm. that you know there are points where in the grieving process you are just you're just broken and that's okay but as a film it's not satisfying or comforting or relatable to me at least Mm -hmm. i understand that you know When you're grieving, sometimes you're just in these moments of being in the depth of sorrow and anger and confusion. But I didn't, I wasn't able to relate that to my experience with the character, Mm -hmm. I guess is what I'm saying. So to me, that wasn't, again, I keep saying this over and over with this movie, like I get what they were going for conceptually, but I didn't, I never felt that affinity to it. Yes. Like I understand it intellectually, but it didn't, it didn't do anything for me emotionally. And that's, to me, what a film is supposed to do. Like feel anything. Yeah, exactly. Like, like I didn't feel angry yeah. when I was done. I didn't mm-hmm. feel like, 
I don't feel confused even. I just feel nothing. Yeah. I'm just like, well, that's a thing we watched. And it was pretty. And I liked the music. If we could just get those like really cool sky shots (laughs) over the score for two hours, I would like zone out to that for a little bit <laughs> you know yeah like yeah i would have a really enjoyable experience with that just project that onto your ceiling while you fall asleep Ooh, that'd be nice <laughs> yeah. so we're gonna hit, gonna the, the hit this thing. vein okay let's do it all right so one of the things that cosmato said this movie was about is toxic masculinity And when I hear that a movie is about toxic masculinity, I wonder, is it challenging toxic masculinity? Is it showing toxic masculinity? Like, how are we interacting with that? Mm -hmm. And I honestly still don't know, even after having just literally just finished this movie, I still don't know what I'm supposed to feel in terms of the relationship from this movie to toxic masculinity. And that is because the women characters in this movie are so one dimensional. Mm -hmm. It's almost like this movie is participating in toxic masculinity. Yes. Like, It doesn't feel like a challenge when all of your female characters are paper thin. The movie is literally called Mandy. Mm Mm-hmm. And Mandy is almost a non-character. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned that while we were watching, like, Mandy only serves to catalyze Red's... What Red's Revenge. I mean, let's be real here, you know, to use a common fandom term, she gets fridged, you know, and her whole purpose is, you know, she exists to die so that Nick Cage can do a bunch of drugs and get all bloody, Yeah, you know, and the other women in the film, there are two other women in the film, and they are both there to serve Jeremiah. Mm -hmm. And one of them barely speaks. Yeah. And the other one is, has the potential to be very interesting because she's kind of creepy, but she dies pretty quickly when the revenge starts. And her one speech that's longer than five seconds is all about how she provides Jeremiah sexual pleasure. Yeah. So every woman in this film is just simply there to serve the men. This is like the tricky part about movies right now. Like you don't just get a gold star for saying a movie is about like, oh, I made a movie about toxic masculinity. Like that doesn't automatically give you a gold star. Right. You have to actually have something to say about it. If you're just putting it on display, number one, you run the risk of like traumatizing your audience or triggering them. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know that, you know, Some people get upset about that, but it's true, you Mm -hmm. know. Um, This movie, not so much, but I have seen other movies um, where I'm like, damn, you know, like movies. Wish I would have known. Yeah, I wish I would have known going in, you know, movies that deal with sexual assault and things like that, where it's like, Jesus, you know. Um, Did you think about any of the women and femme people in your audience and how this might affect them? Or were you only thinking about a male audience member? Mm Mm-hmm. I feel like we see a lot of toxic masculinity, but we don't see any healing. We don't see any reckoning. The one like shred that got me like somewhat interested 
is that the kind of bathroom freak out scene. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Ta- let's has. talk about that. Yeah. But but I, I have I have opinions about that, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so once... Mandy has been killed and Red frees himself from his bondage from the cult. He goes back home and he's sort of in this haze of trauma and he goes into the bathroom and he just kind of breaks down. Again, like some of the problem with the reception of this film is that I heard so much about this scene going into this movie and everyone was like, Nick Cage was over the top. Like, you always hear it phrased as over the top. Mm -hmm. Now, we're going to talk about... I'm just going to go ahead and tease it. Let's do it. We usually do it at the end, but whatever, um, because it's relevant. We're talking about Hereditary next week. Tony Collette's grieving scene in Hereditary is also very famous. It's beautiful, quite frankly, and we'll get into it more next week. These are both big, visceral displays of grief. Tony Collette, rightly so, everyone was like, she should win an award for that scene alone. And I agree. Nick Cage, it was hilarious. It was over the top. And I'm like, what does that say about how we, using the gender binary here for a mm-hmm. second, how we gender grief? That it is, yes, shocking and visceral, but acceptable to watch a woman and a mother grieve showing heavy emotion, physical, mental, the whole thing over her dead child. Whereas watching a man have the same type of very visceral, emotional, physical reaction to losing his partner is coded as over the top. Like, Mm -hmm. what does that say about the way that we allow men, masculine people to grieve in our society like that is hella problematic and that touches on toxic masculinity i think mm-hmm. because as we know toxic masculinity hurts men too mm-hmm. however we don't really get to see like i had to connect all those dots myself and i was thinking about it because we're doing hereditary next week yeah i think it- the average viewer isn't gonna necessarily make all those ties yeah for sure and i mentioned when we were watching that particular scene that i thought it was very raw and i thought it was a a really Mm -hmm. good display by nick cage he's screaming he's crying he's kind of going from these one extreme to the other he's screaming in anger he's weeping and crying and then he goes back to screaming he's chugging vodka a vodka that was hidden in the bathroom for some reason he's in his underwear so he's like in a vulnerable state Mm mm-hmm And he is just doing something very real, which is he's not in control of his emotions temporarily. And that's when he decides, like when we see him first start gearing up towards, you know, this revenge arc that he's going to take. But yeah, I didn't really find anything about it funny. No. Especially considering the seriousness and the pain of watching somebody you love die right in front of you, especially because you can't move, you can't do anything about it, you can't help them. And he has the scene, too, where he is touching her ashes, you know? Mm -hmm. Mandy gets burned alive in front of him, and basically all of the cult members laugh while they're doing it. And so he has this very real moment of, of grief, and then immediately after the grief it's like all right cool now we're gonna go into this bloody like revenge filled act of the movie where we don't see any growth we don't get any additional information on mandy we just have these fantasies that red is having 
about her, these uh, cartoon, you know, memories and visions that he's having of her, but really no resolution. Yeah. There's also this scene where where Red goes to visit Bill Duke's character, Carruthers, and we get this strange, like, tiny amount of backstory where apparently Red was a badass in a former life and had a crossbow for some reason, but they don't ever really flesh that out. Mm -hmm. So it's unsatisfying as background information, but also how are we going to give Red's character the care to have enough of a background of like five minutes where he goes to talk to this guy? But Mandy, all we know about her is that she's an artist and that she reads sci-fi books from the late 70s and early 80s. And that her father was somehow violent, maybe abusive, maybe not. And I felt like even that was a very kind of paint by numbers, you know, oh, she's a woman who experienced some kind of trauma at the hands of her father. Yeah. Okay. So we can't make her otherwise interesting. Yeah. Like, all we know is that she is a damsel in distress, Mm -hmm. and she has been at least one other time in her life, and that she reads and draws, and that's it. And then she becomes this ethereal, goddess-like, unattainable... Always naked. (laughs) Always naked, you know, always with this sort of vague look you know this sort of thing to aspire to but like gross man you know yeah i'm really disappointed having watched it a second time that the female characters are either simply there to get murdered yeah or are there as vessels of sexual desire for jeremiah yeah or both yeah or both yeah Uh, Because, I mean, honestly, Mandy is sexually assaulted prior to being murdered. And the reason, ostensibly the reason for her murder is because she was sexually assaulted. She's kidnapped. She's drugged by mother and the other woman. And I don't even know her name, honestly. I don't know if she had a name. (laughs) Who even knows? Mother drugs Mandy. And then Mandy is forced to sit and listen to Jeremiah kind of proselytized to her about God and how he is imbued with the Holy Spirit and things like that. And then finally, he disrobes and is naked in front of her. Initially, I guess in the script, the actor was supposed to be masturbating in front of in front of Mandy, which I'm glad that they made the decision not to do that because mm-hmm. honestly, like why yeah. at that point? But he he presents himself to Mandy and Mandy laughs in his face and Jeremiah becomes so angered by this that he decides that she's going to be an offering and gets the group together and he burns her in, alive, which is extremely distressing, especially to watch somebody forced to be, you know, to take drugs and then be sexually assaulted. Like it's, that's rough. It's terrible. Yeah. But then to never have any further, like, that's the end of her her mm-hmm. story. And then we just have Red take over. And so confronting the toxic masculinity, I could understand you're confronting Jeremiah. You're ending that cycle of toxic masculinity. But dumping more toxic masculinity yeah. on top of that is not the way that you solve it. It's like saying two wrongs don't make a right. Like, yeah, this is another instance just pouring more toxic masculinity, having a guy tear through a bunch of people 
and kill your wife's killer, sure, that can be refreshing and satisfying to see that. But to never see anything else yeah, is just, I don't know, it's just not satisfying. Yeah. You have that moment where he does spare the younger woman cult member, again, who's name was apparently so forgettable that I don't remember it. That tells you how fleshed out of a character she was. But even that is presented more as Red showing a moment of compassion in his rampage. Not Red understanding that while this woman did participate, she is very much a victim of Jeremiah herself. Mm -hmm. Not recognizing that, you know, like Mandy, she is a victim, etc. It's just like this brief moment of compassion. And then, you know, and then he beheads the other woman. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, there's, yeah. there's not a lot of understanding there at all. And it doesn't make a lot of sense to the way that Mercy is dished out. Yeah. It doesn't make a lot of sense. But another thing that we talked about while we were watching this movie is the way that men are allowed to enact or or male masculine presenting people are allowed to enact revenge versus the way that femme presenting people are allowed to enact revenge. So I wanted to get into that a little bit, too. I mean, obviously, based off of all of the things that we've just talked about in this movie, Red enacts his revenge by literally he forges an axe yeah like a metal axe (laughs) to go and chop people's heads off it Mm -hmm. is specifically designed to stab people and chop heads and he also gets into a chainsaw fight later where do you get the mold for that forge by the way how does he know how to do any of that how does he know the mix for the metal yeah where did he find a place to you know hot enough to be able to do that yeah we have no idea yeah that's hmm we we get these little teases that maybe his life was a lot different pre yeah. pre Mandy, but like, who even knows? Like, is that even real? Yeah, exactly. So yeah. there's that. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, <laughs> but he is allowed to enact revenge in a way that involves him literally slaughtering everybody. Yeah. But then, you know, I asked Juliet, can you think of a, a movie where there's a femme presenting person who's enacting revenge and the movie also being directed by a, fe- right. by a you know, femme presenting person? And we did, we came up with one and it's Promising Young Woman. And the ways that I heard people react to Promising Young Woman versus the ways that I heard people react to Mandy. Mm-hmm. There is such a clash there of how we say femme presenting people are allowed to enact their revenge. So Promising Young Woman, Juliet and I both really love that movie. Yes. Yeah. Emerald Fennell did an insanely good job. But all I heard was, well, it's the best use of your time after your friend and having such a terrible thing happen to her and then taking her own life because of it is the best thing that you could do to, you know, sandbag your way through life and then ruin all of these other people's lives and then get yourself killed in the process. Shouldn't you be living your best life? Or or like go on to, you know, become a doctor in spite of all of these people and live for her and all that stuff. And then this movie, we're like, yeah, this dude, like, oh, he went and killed a whole bunch of demon bikers and a whole bunch of cult members and he squished Jeremiah's head and his eyeballs popped out. And it was sweet. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So femme presenting people need to go on to live their best life well, they and need just to be useful. And just be quiet and yeah, you know quiet and useful. And not cause any people discomfort. Mm-hmm. But masculine presenting people can literally forge axes and chop off heads. Yeah. And to be fair, presenting a woman is very steeped in reality, mm-hmm. very careful, and Mandy is not. It is decidedly not. But how many movies do you see of revenge films where women go and chop heads with an axe? Mm-hmm. Mandy didn't do that for herself. Like, this is a fantasy world that we're building. And it would be so, it would have been so dope if Mandy had come back from the dead with her hell axe. That'd be and, sweet. Oh, and my God. And she yeah. chopped the heads. Yeah. Mandy doesn't need Red to come yeah. in and chop the heads for her. Because this is a fantasy world that we're living in. Oh, now, see, now, instead of Red killing her, now I want the movie to be Mandy rises from the ashes like a badass phoenix and gets her own revenge for herself. Or what if Red still goes on the revenge thing, but it's because he needs to get blood to resurrect her, and yeah. then she does bad all by herself. Yeah, like he gets all the blood, and then she gets to be the one to kill Jeremiah. Yes. I would like that. Yeah. Yeah. That should happen. The whole male savior complex thing. I'm so tired of it. Yeah. And I don't think that Cosmatos, I don't think he saw that in the film when he made it. It doesn't seem to me like this movie was intentionally violent towards women, with the exception of, like, the actual literal violence. I don't think that it was an intentionally derivative of that. Based off of the care that went into the imagery, Mm -hmm. the care that went into the music, I don't think so. But I think that this movie is derivative of the way that we are uncaring towards women in cinema, towards femme people in cinema. Especially from a male director yeah and it's not direct it's not purposeful it's a it's just a byproduct of the media that we steep ourselves in and the way that news and television shows and movies in general treat femme people and how they are supposed to act you know quote unquote supposed to act or not supposed to act yep and we just sat here and came up with two ways that where this movie could be totally femme forward and really badass and mm-hmm. super cool. But we didn't get those things. We got a pretty cool bloody revenge arc in the third act, muddied and diluted by the first two acts that do not do it any favors. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is just an example of the patriarchy at work and being ingrained in all of us, you know, in uh, on almost cellular levels, you know, it's it's a, as with so many other systems of, of oppression, it's a system we are all born into and participate in explicitly and implicitly. Yeah. And I don't think there was malice on the part of the director in this at all. I just think it was... Um, Yeah, it's as you say, it's a lack of care. And it's just like, it's just a narrow way of thinking that we are all guilty of Mm -hmm. at at different points of just thinking like, yeah, I'm making this badass story and not pulling back and saying, oh, huh, what are my women characters doing? Mm -hmm. What are my characters of color doing? What are, do I, are all my characters able-bodied? You know, all of these little things 
that we just have to start thinking about more and being a little more intentional about. Because if you, like, take this movie from a thousand feet stare, this is, it's almost a medieval story. Yeah. Where it's, like, woman gets, you know, kidnapped, woman gets murdered, man comes to revenge. Yeah. Honestly, it feels very Shakespearean. Yeah. It feels very Arthurian, honestly. Arthurian, yes. You're right. You're right. Totally. Take it back further. (laughs) Really, it does. It it feels like a medieval story, but we're not in medieval times anymore. We're far, far, far away from that. And I think that we could use a little bit more sensitivity in our storytelling. Mm-hmm. And can you check all the boxes all the time for being sensitive? You definitely can't. Yeah. And, and I don't think that anybody would expect you to. But when you have two femme-presenting people who watch a movie and both of us are keying into the same things about this movie, and knowing, at least in my own personal experience, that most of the folks who I know who are cheering this movie on and saying like wow so badass and so cool are masculine presenting people yeah it's like okay well i get where you were going with this but also this movie is not for me exactly yeah yeah and that's that's unfortunate down on it yeah and when you hear so this huge group of people just like really stoked on this movie and then you watch it and you're like it's because you are it's because you're men yeah like that's Mm -hmm. why you're so stoked on this movie and I, I don't think that either of our solutions to how to make this movie cool would have taken away from, like, anybody's watching. I don't think so. It. Yeah. We have better ways to tell stories. Mm-hmm. We have better ways to represent women. Ask a femme-presenting person. Well, Just yeah. ask. Well, and that boils down to, you know, if you have a writer's room, who's in your writer's room? If you are writing a script solo... Who's reading it? Who's editing it? Who, you know, are you, are you doing things like having second readers, Mm -hmm. you know, having people, and this is an emerging thing in both the literary industry and the film industry, but there are really awesome, well-trained professionals who you can pay and they will read your script or your book or your thing And help you think through where you might have gaps just like this. Like, Mm -hmm. hey, you know, it's not to say that your story is wrong, but did you realize because you were in it when you were writing it that your women are one dimensional or you're lacking this or this character is such a stereotype? Mm -hmm. Like Stuff like that only makes your story better, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. It can never hurt because even if you decide to not take any of their advice, at least you've done that. Right. And I don't think that it ever hurts exactly. to, to ask for a second opinion. So, yeah, like all in all, I'm glad that I rewatched it. I'm glad that I paid attention this time. Yeah, me too. I might buy the soundtrack. Like, oh, it's, yeah, it's good enough that I, I really, really, really enjoyed the soundtrack so much that I might actually buy it. His other stuff's amazing, too. Yeah. And I might like check it out. And I will also, after having watched the viewing on Netflix by Penos Cosmatos, I will be watching his other stuff. Yeah. I will continue to watch this director. Mm-hmm. This movie is not enough for me to be like, yeah, I'm never going to watch that ever again. Definitely not. Yeah. I don't think I need to watch this specific movie again in a very long time. Maybe after he's made a few more films, I might want to watch it in context to kind of see 
his journey as a filmmaker. But I do want to see... I was actually excited to see that he announced another feature Mm -hmm. because I do want to see what he can do because he's very, very competent visually and he's very, very competent about partnering with the right people to get a score to evoke, you know, a mood. So I think if he can get the storytelling more in line, you know, he could do great things. And I hope that he does. Honestly, I don't I, you know. I want to be clear that when, you know, when we criticize a film like this, if it's a director who's still working, like, we want to see them succeed, ultimately. Yeah, for sure. Definitely never want to, you know, tank somebody's. Yeah. I also never want to, like, yuck anybody's yum, you know? Like, sure. If you're really into revenge films, like, this is probably the, the movie for you. And maybe you won't think so hard about, you know... Yeah, and truly, that is that is another thing. Like, if you're able to lock into this movie and just have a good time, great. Like, have a good time. Please enjoy your viewing experience. I think you and I, even if we weren't doing this for a podcast, we tend to go more analytical in our viewing. Yeah. I have certain movies where I can check my brain at the door, but a lot is horror, especially. I am really watching it with more of a critical mindset because mm-hmm. I see so much potential in the genre that I really want to watch things and and see what people are doing. So, But if that's not your experience of horror or a film and you just watch stuff to have a good time, go for it. Yeah. And like, I also respect this movie a lot because it kind of marked a resurgence of Nick Cage getting like leading yeah. roles in not direct to streaming stuff. Mm-hmm. Or, like, stuff that didn't get a theater release at all. After this movie, he did... He was a voice in Spider-Man, Into the Spider-Verse. He did Color Out of Space, which is another Shutter exclusive. He did Pig, which was a huge critical success for him. Prisoners of the Ghostland, which is weird. Mm-hmm. Another Shutter exclusive. Willy's Wonderland. Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. So this is, like, marking his resurgence. So I do respect this movie for helping Nick Cage to kind of, like, both come back and also be taken seriously in horror. Yeah, definitely. And like what you said before, I love the genre and there's such potential in it and I want people to take it seriously. Yeah. And understand that the genre horror is just like so big. It's such a big genre. You have revenge horror. You have, you know, what have what have you. So I just, I wish that there was a little bit more care in this one with the handling of female characters and then I probably would have been like chef's kiss. Yeah, agreed. So next time, we already told you what's happening next time, but let me just reiterate. (laughs) Um, Next episode is actually our birthday. It's our one-year anniversary as a podcast. Woot woot. I'm going to make a cake or something. Yeah, yeah. Or just cheese. We tend to celebrate. That's true. I'll make cheese cheese and have grapes. That's easier. (laughs) (laughs) Just slice some cheese. Not not make cheese. I will put the cheese out. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) I'm not going to be making any cheese. Let me just clarify. I can't make cheese. (laughs) I don't know how. But yeah, it's our birthday. Yeah, it's our birthday. Um, And we decided that we would do another Ari Aster film. This is going to be another second watch for both of us. Another one that we were really eager to revisit and are really excited to see what the rewatchability factor is of a film that had such an impact in the theater. There were so many moments in the theater that I that was such a memorable viewing experience for both of us. Yes. And so knowing all of the things, we want to go back and watch it again and see how it does for us uh, when we go in knowing 
the middle and the end, quite frankly. Yes. So we're going to be doing Hereditary next time. I'm so excited because... Although it's not the first time I thought about a podcast, it's probably the first time I ever thought about like actually critically thinking about horror and how I can relate to other people in that way. Also, similarly to how you had a major life event happen to you before watching Midsummer, right. I had a major life event happen to me before watching Hereditary and it really messed me up while I was watching this movie. And I say that, like, messed me up, but I want to emphasize that it was in the best way. Like, Mm -hmm. it made the movie hit me so hard that I think I, like, I don't remember parts of that movie because it hit me, the impact was so intense. So I'm going to watch this movie again, knowing how it ends and knowing the middle of it, not remembering some parts of it. Oh, fun. Okay. Like, I don't remember all of the... Tony Collette grief scene. Oh, wow. Because I was struggling (laughs) through that part. So (laughs) I am extremely excited to do this for our one-year anniversary. I don't think that there is a better movie for us to do for our birthday. Yeah, I agree. It's going to be fun. I'm excited. Also, we teased this a couple episodes ago, but we're starting a Patreon, y'all. Yeah, we are. So it's taken us a little while. Um, You know, silly us trying to launch anything leading up to halloween Uh, i mean ever truly but like leading up to halloween um yeah we were like oh right this is the busiest time of year for us but we are uh getting ready to get the patreon going we've got some bonus content in the works that we will be excited to share with you we'll tease it here on the regular feed to give you a little taste and hopefully uh entice you in and we'll have some cool ways to interact because we know that uh, a lot of our usual spots on the internet are turning into a giant trash fire so hopefully we can (laughs) offer you an alternative yes very soon so more on that to come in the meantime please follow us on the socials even the socials that are a trash fire right now thank you we're a trash fire free zone that's true yeah Trash fire free. Totally. Guaranteed. 60% less trash fire. Yes. Guaranteed. 60% more opinions and 60% less trash fires. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Attack of the Final Girls. Find us online at attackofthefinalgirls.com. We are Attack of the Final Girls on Instagram and TikTok and Final Girls Pod on Twitter. Our theme music is by House Ghost and is available on Rad Girlfriend Records. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode and rate and review on Apple Podcasts so more people can find the show. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. Until next time, stay scary. Stay scary.